Well, aren't you glad you're here today? Amen. Celebrating our, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you, choir and orchestra, and preparing our heart for uh, God's Word. And today we celebrate the biggest event in the history of the world. Amen. You see, there's nothing comparable to the resurrection. There's no other religious act. There's no other sociological act. There's no other historical event or act that has changed the world the way the resurrection of Jesus Christ did. And that's because those things are temporary. But what Jesus did changed all of life and history for eternity. And so for that reason, we celebrate the resurrection. I'm glad you're here to be a part of that today. And the Bible says because Jesus conquered the grave, through him we can also have eternal victory over death. In the pyramids of Egypt, there are famous uh, uh, sarcophaguses of those ancient emperors. I've crawled around in the pyramids and seen where they've laid these emperors. In Westminster Abbey in London, there, it is renowned because the bodies of many Englishmen, nobles, and great leaders of the British Empire are entombed there. Muhammad's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones that it contains. The Taj Mahal was built as a memorial to a wife of one of India's shahs. And Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. is revered for all the honored resting places of many outstanding Americans and heroes. And the garden tomb of Jesus is famous not because of the bones that are inside, but it's famous because there are no bones inside. It's famous because the one who was put there rose from the grave. Dr. Henry Morris said that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. But if it did take place, and it did, then Christ is God, and the Christian faith is the absolute truth. And while... We believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is uh, central to the celebration of Easter. Less than half of all Americans now link the two, the resurrection with Easter, that is. The Barner Research Group found that only 42% of adults tie Easter to the resurrection. And adults uh, between the ages of 18 and 25 are doing the worst at that, identifying the resurrection and Easter. David Kinneman, who is the president of the Barner Group, said that, and I quote, the Easter holiday in particular still has a distinctly religious connection for people, but the specifics of the Easter celebration are really fading in a lot of people's minds. And because that is the case, that it is fading in the minds of many in our culture today, it's even more important that we celebrate and that we talk about just what Easter uh, means. And that's what I want to do this morning. If you are physically able to do so, I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word from John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. The Scripture says, Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Father, we believe that you are, in fact, the risen Son of God that came into the world and died for our sins and conquered the grave that we might have life. And today, Father, would you remind us of the significance of that and, Father, what it means for us and for any that are watching by live stream or television or uh, listening by radio that do not know you, would you cause them today to understand the great significance of this great event, the resurrection, and how it changes life and changes our life personally. And Lord, I pray that we'll hear your word now, that your spirit will move in our hearts and cause us, Father, to understand that which you have brought us here to hear. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, maybe you're familiar with this story, the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus. He dies, and uh, Jesus knew that he died. But interestingly, Jesus didn't go immediately uh, to where uh, Lazarus was in Bethany with uh, his friends, Martha and Mary. He waited on purpose, and he waited because he was about to demonstrate just who he was. He was about to demonstrate just what the power of God looked like over death and the grave. And so he waited for a couple of days, and then he went. And Jesus has a conversation with the sisters, and in that conversation, he makes some powerful life-giving uh, statements, some life-giving facts and reassurances that he gave to both of them. It was their hope, it was encouragement, not just for their brother, but for the future of all of those who believe in him. And I want to show you what they were. Four things, let me show you. First of all, Jesus' life-giving revelation. He says in verse 25 to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This, is his, this was his response to her when she said, Lord, if, if you had have been here, uh, our brother wouldn't have died. And, and uh, Jesus said, well, he, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I know he will in the last day. But Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand something. I am the resurrection. And by the way, Jesus ties the I am statement here is a, is a tie to God's I am statement, and there are many times it's reflected uh, in uh, the scriptures. But it's really an incredible statement because what it means is that Jesus is the source of life for both those who die and those who are alive. And Jesus takes Martha's statement uh, and, and he takes it to another level completely. So when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is connecting himself to God the Father. And the I am in the Greek that he utters there is in what we call the present tense. Now here's what that means. Listen, don't miss this. So when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, this is what he, uh, this is what I, what I was in the past, I am. And what I am in the future I am right now in the present. The I am, the resurrection statement, is the hope of all eternity. On January 23, 2001, famed radio and 
uh, uh, television host Larry King died. And many do not know that for years that Larry King lived with this constant fear of dying. In fact, the New York Times in 2015 did an article on King and they reported that King is, and this is a quote, obsessed with death. His day begins with reading obituaries and he ponders who will give the eulogy at his funeral but then responds, well, I won't be there to see it anyway. He has, he's had a heart attack. He had, had quintuple bypasses. He's had, he had prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. I'm not going to draw a connection between heart attack and cancer and all that, but I'll let you do that. Maybe I just did. He was 77 years old when he died, and uh, or I should say when he was dropped from CNN, his, a gig he had had for so many decades. And when this happened, when he was dropped from CNN, he really began to contemplate the fact that one day he was going to die. And so he began to take additional steps to prevent his own death. He took hormone pills for human growth, four of them each day. And he actually had plans made to have his body cryogenically frozen at the point in time when he, right before he was about to die, so that when the technology advanced sufficiently, he could live again. The New York Times writer who was doing the article reports this. He says, it's nuts, concedes King, but at least it gives him a shred of hope. To which King responded, well, other people have no hope. Well, that's just not true, is it? Because a lot of people have believed, just like Larry King, that there is no hope beyond the grave. And they certainly believe that in this day. There were a group of uh, folks called the Gnostics and the Sadducees who believed that uh, there wasn't anything beyond. And many people today believe that. That there's little hope beyond the grave. But Jesus' statement here is a statement of hope. It is a statement that encourages and gives us hope. Because he's saying, I am the life. I am your life. I am the resurrection. I am what makes life beyond this life meaningful. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Did you get that? Paul said, if all we have is Christ in this life, if there's no hope beyond this life, then he said, we're pitiful people. I'm glad he didn't stop there. But he goes on to say, But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits, the first one to do it. And because he has conquered the grave, he has now paved the way for all of those who belong to him that come behind him. Jesus' statement here, I am the resurrection and the life, is a matter of fact. He's not saying that he is a means of life beyond. He is is stating unequivocally that he is the only means to life beyond and the resurrection. In other words, he is the only, one and only, means to eternal life. There is no other way for us to conquer death and the grave but by him. There is and was this life-giving revelation made by Jesus. And Jesus proved his power over the grave when he told Lazarus to come forth. Now, you've heard it said before, I'm not the first one to to make this statement, but Jesus called him by name, didn't he? He said, Lazarus, arise. And you know, uh, it has been said that if Jesus hadn't used Lazarus' name, everybody in the grave would have come forth at that point. Arise, there they come. 
But the fact is, he demonstrated that he is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus and by himself conquering the grave. But here's a second, here's a second statement that I want you to see, a second fact, you, if you will, about the resurrection. It's Jesus' life-giving expectation. Verse 25, <coughs> Jesus says this, whoever believes in me. Jesus' power over the grave comes with his expectation of belief. He expects us to believe. And the word believe here in the Greek is the Greek word pisteo, and it means to personally have faith in. It is, it is the idea of personally trusting Him. It is personal and it is powerful. because It's personal because no one can have faith in Christ for you but you. And uh, I can't do that. I would if I could. And, and you can't have faith in Christ for me. Uh, this morning, just not too long ago, before this service, a man who's been visiting with us for a couple of months. And I've talked to him about the Lord. And when he first began to come, I, I talked to him and I, I said, uh, do you know the Lord? He said, I, I'm getting there. I, I'm going. But he, he's continued to come and visit. He chased me down the hall. He said, Pastor, Pastor. And finally I realized in all the noise, I turned and stopped and he came to me. And he said, he looked at me and he grinned and he said, I'm ready. And right there in Mission Hall, he prayed and trusted Christ Jesus as his Savior this morning. He put his faith in Christ this morning. Isn't that great? And there are some in this place today sitting here, and you need to do the same thing. And there are those of you who are watching by television, and there are those of you on live stream, and some listening by radio, and you need to do the, the same thing. You've had a religious experience, but you've never had a personal uh, experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's personal, and it's powerful. Perhaps you've heard of... Uh, the placebo effect. Have you ever heard of the placebo effect? You know what the, it is? It's, it's the power of the brain to help alleviate pain and disease merely by the belief that a treatment is in, uh, occurring. They've done experiments with this. And they'll give you what they call a placebo. You don't know it's a placebo. You think it's the medicine you need to solve the issue that you're dealing with. And they give it to you. And they've done studies that how many people have believed that the placebo was working and it worked. And so, um, uh, so they've studied this. But the placebo has a little studied evil twin. And I'm serious. It's called a nocebo. And uh, it's only beginning to be understood. Uh, the uh, British Broadcast Corporation did a, a documentary on it. And they said in this, they said, We have long known that expectations of a malady can be as dangerous as the malady. In the same way that voodoo shamans could harm their victims through the power of suggestion by priming someone to think that they are ill and uh, often produce the actual symptoms of a disease, including vomiting and dizziness and headaches and even death can be triggered through belief alone. It's called the nocebo effect. But it's now becoming clear just how easily those dangerous beliefs can spread through gossip and hearsay with potent effect. Now listen, the power of belief and suggestion, they're arguing, is remarkably powerful over the physical condition that can even cause some people to die if it is uh, uh, the wrong belief. And that's why it is so important to take what we believe seriously. If belief in the false thing 
can kill or heal. If belief in the wrong thing can kill, think about belief in the real thing, what it can do. Jesus here says uh, and reminds us that we're to believe in Him. It's a life-giving expectation. Why? Because only He can heal forever in eternity. And the fact is, real life, eternal life, requires belief. It requires faith. And that's important because, really, there are four classes of people, you might say. The first is a person uh, that can be physically alive and spiritually dead. There are a lot of people today who you might call the walking dead because they've never put their trust in Christ. They're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. They're dead in their, their trespasses and sin, Paul says. And so they're moving around physically. They have physical life. And they may say, well, I enjoy my physical life. But spiritually, they're dead. And one day, that's going to take an eternal toll. There's another category, and that is a person that is physically dead and spiritually dead. Now, this is the worst possible scenario because if a person is physically dead, they, they can't come back, and if they're spiritually dead, their eternity is set. They can't do anything about it. You see, that's why this life and your decision to trust Christ is so important now because you can't get this right after you die. There are people who've told me before, well, you know, I, I, right before I die, I'll get it. Well, you don't know when right before you're going to die is. And that's why right now the Bible says today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow, not down the road. Don't think that you can mess with God and say, well, I'll wait to the final moment and then I'll get it all straightened out. You don't know when the final moment is. Did you know this? Listen, the Bible says... That before you were ever born, all the days of your life were already written down in God's book. Before you ever experienced one of them. Go read Psalm 139. It talks about that. All of the days of your life. So you don't know. And, there, and by the way, the time clock is different for all of us. That's why right now, believing in Christ is so important. A person can be physically dead, spiritually dead. A third category is a person can be physically dead and spiritually alive. This is the ultimate victory. This is why when we do a, a, a memorial and I do a funeral or a home-going ceremony, what I like to call it for a believer, I don't worry about the person that we're memorializing. I don't worry. They're okay. They may be physically dead, but they're spiritually alive. And see, that's what you want them. By the way, we will all pass that way, and that's why you want people saying, he's not here, but we know where he is. He's in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who can put his trust in. So a person can be physically dead, spiritually alive. And then fourth, a person can be physically alive and spiritually alive. This has benefits both now and forever. That's We're alive now and we've trusted Christ and we're living for him. It, is, it brings peace in the present. It brings forgiveness and, and meaning uh, right now in our life with heaven to follow. But it, is also, it also has to be secured by trusting Christ in this lifetime. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and all things have become new. By the way, which of those four categories are you in? So, belief or faith is a life-giving expectation. But number three, Jesus 
Jesus' life-giving declaration is made in verses 25 and 26. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is more than a statement just to ponder. It is a declared promise for you to claim. And notice that faith, belief, and life are connected. In other words, have faith in Christ to have life forever. And the opposite is just as true. No faith in Christ results in, in no life in Christ after. Jesus is not saying that a believer will never die physically. That's not what he's saying here. Remember that Lazarus, though he was raised from the dead, Lazarus would die again. So Jesus isn't saying that, that a person that trusts in him will never die. He's saying physically, he's saying that they will have eternal life. He means that uh, believers will not die in the sense in which death has eternal consequences of hell and uh, the grave to follow. And there, there are some things about the promise worth noting. Uh, first of all, it is open to everyone. Did you notice that? He, he says, whoever believes in me. While the path to eternity is narrow, and Jesus makes that clear, the opportunity is open to everyone. It's not exclusive. It's not like, well, some can and some can't. The path is open. It is narrow. Narrow is the way, Jesus said. And few find it, but it's not because they can't. It's because they choose not to. You see, it's open to everyone. And then secondly, it must be claimed while you're alive. He said, whoever believes in me who lives, you must trust Christ now. Trust him while you can. Have you ever had the check engine light come on on your car? You ever had that happen? You know what that feels like when you see that check engine light. It feels like money, doesn't it? I mean, when it comes on, and uh, it probably spooked you just a little bit, didn't it? Well, a few years ago, a Harris Interactive survey sponsored by CarMD.com found that 10% of over 2,000 people that they surveyed, 10% of these adults that were polled were driving cars whose check engine light was on. And the, the survey went on to show that an alarming 50% of those whose cars were showing signs of an impending breakdown indicated the light had been on for over three months. And another 10% said the light had been on between one and two months. Uh, Christian Brokoff, the marketing manager for CarMD, says, the light can signify something potentially costly and possibly dangerous to passengers, uh, the driver, or others on the road. So it's important that drivers take it seriously. The survey found that drivers had a whole litany of excuses for ignoring the light. Some turned a blind eye toward the indicator because the severity of the problem seemed questionable due to the fact that the car seemed to be running fine. In other words, they just simply said, it feels fine, so I'm not going to worry about it. Others pointed to a lack of sufficient funds. I know this is going to be expensive, and so I'm just going to drive it until, it until it goes. Still, others simply noted they, they just didn't have time to worry about diagnostics and the subsequent repairs. I just don't have time to fool with it. I don't know if y'all saw this uh, commercial. I forget who it was representing, but the woman's engine light is on. Have y'all seen that? And you know how she deals with it? She has a smiley face sticker, and she just sticks it on, the, on the, the dashboard where the light is on, and it covers the light up. And I thought, well, that's a pretty creative way to deal with it, isn't it? But it is, it is put there to warn us and say, 
uh, there's something serious going on. Listen, there are some of you today that are listening to me, and your spiritual engine light is on. And, and you just keep ignoring it. You, you think you can, you can get to it later on, or, or you're making it uh, okay in spite of the light. So what's the emergency? Well, you need to deal with it while you still can by claiming the promise of eternal life now. And that leads to the third thing about the promise, and that is it's only accessible by belief. And the belief is specific to Christ. You know, we live in a culture today that says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something sincerely and something deeply. And friend, I just want to tell you that that's just not true. If I go stand in a garage and believe I'm a car, that doesn't make it true. No matter how sincerely I believe that. And we're being told today, whatever you believe, <clears throat> that's okay. That's good enough. All beliefs end up at the same destination. It's just not true. It's why Jesus said to his followers, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And by the way, in the Greek, that is the the is what we call the definite article. And so when he, Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the one and only way. I am the life. There is no other life apart from me. I am the way, the truth. I am the truth. Our culture tells us there's all kinds of truth today. But Jesus is the truth. He is the standard of truth. All truth is measured against him. And so and when he says, I am the resurrection, guess what? It's a definite article in the Greek. What he's saying is, I am the only resurrection. This is the only way. I am that way. And that and that way has to be accessed by belief in this life. So, the resurrection is connected to this life-giving declaration. But then there's one final thing I show you this morning, and that is, I want you to note Jesus' defining solicitation. Look at verse 26. Again, he says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then this solicitation, then this question, he says to Martha, Do you believe this? Why did he ask that? Because her answer would define her. And her answer was, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, before Jesus exercised power, his power of life over the grave, he asked Martha the most important question, do you believe in me? He asked her, do you believe that, through, that, that though a person dies, he will, he will live in me? Do you believe that, Martha? And her answer is, yes, I do. I, I, I believe it. It reminded me of the occasion where Jesus was with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is a beautiful area just on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And if you go back, there's this beautiful stream, and you stand there, and this, this rock wall, this massive rock wall that, that goes up probably 75 feet. And in that rock wall are carved out these little alcoves all through there, all over this wall up there. And what they did at the time of Jesus is they believed in so many gods. They were afraid they were going to miss God, so they would create unknown uh, idols to unknown gods and all kinds of gods, the God of agriculture and the God of, of grain and the God, I mean, everything you can imagine. And then they would take and they would sit these little gods in these alcoves. And so you could come and worship whichever God you you believed you needed to worship at the time. Kind of like the world you're living in today. You, what, what do you, where do you need to give your spiritual attention? It was that kind of thing. And so against that backdrop, uh, uh, Jesus has his followers there 
And he, he's, you can picture this. He's looking at this wall and he's saying, he's saying, uh, who do men say that I am? They're looking at all of these different gods and, and uh, who they worship. And who, who do people say that the Son of Man is, he asked. And they replied, and here's what they say. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. And against that backdrop, all of these many many pagan gods Jesus said but who do you say that I am who do you say that's personal and and Simon Peter replied you are the Christ the son of the living God the right answer just like Martha you are the Christ I believe you are the Christ I don't believe you're one of the many gods that have been made by man you are the Christ you are the way you are the only way you are the resurrection and the life and I ask you this morning on this Easter Sunday how about you do you believe it's not about what others believe it's not about what others say about God it is about you who do you say that Jesus is, have you put your trust in Christ alone? You see, it's, it's possible for a person to believe intellectually in God and yet not allow God to have residence in their life. Our uh, survey after survey shows in American culture that, that people believe in the idea of God. If you ask people, do you believe in God, the statistics are something like 80 plus percent, which by the way is down significantly from back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But 80 something percent, but you know, you know it's just not true, right? Because our culture wouldn't be in the mess it's in if 80 plus percent of the culture believed in the God of the Bible. What that really means oftentimes, well, I believe in an idea of God or I believe in the God I want to believe in. People say this, well, I believe my God, the God I believe, that's, by the way, when you when you do, be careful because you're elevating your thoughts over the idea of God. You're, you're, you're saying that, that, that the God of my construction, the God of my mind, this is who it is. And there are a lot of people today that believe intellectually in God. But don't, you say, well, that's kind of where I am. Well, don't get too proud of yourself if that's all you've got because the Bible says you believe in God, good. Even the demons believe in God. In fact, they're probably more devoted believers than a lot of intellectuals that say they believe in God, right? So you can believe intellectually in God and not have a, the residency of Christ in your life. For example, consider the painter Vincent van Gogh. He was born the son of a Lutheran pastor and was a student of theology. He even served as a missionary in a Belgian mining community. Yet if you go look at his artwork, it is without any spiritual content. Can you imagine that? And we know that his life was miserably unhappy, even to the point that he eventually committed suicide. With all of that knowledge, even having done, served as a religious missionary, and yet there was no residence of the Spirit of God in his life. C.H. Spurgeon claimed that 98% of the people he met, including the criminals that he visited in England's prisons, told him that they believed the Bible to be true. But the vast majority had never made a personal 
life-changing commitment to Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, I believe it's true, but they'd never given their life to Christ. They'd never put their personal belief and trust in Christ. It's the difference between what you believe here and what you receive here. This is doing something with what you believe. And then, uh, and Spurgeon said that believe, in their case, had nothing to do with trusting the living Christ. And so really the big question for all of us uh, here today is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. And it is the reason that Jesus delayed his coming to raise Lazarus. It is the question, is Martha, do you really believe? Do you understand? Mary, do you understand? And he would walk in this room today and he would say, do you get it? Do you understand? I am not a resurrection. I am not a way. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And I am the only solution to death. I'm the only way. And so the big question for all of us is, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ? Not just in your head, not just with your intellect, but do you believe Him and have you received Him as your personal Savior, just like that man did before this service down the hallway. We stopped right there and he prayed and called on the name of the Lord. The Bible says this, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be, but will be. And that's why it's so important, the resurrection. Because it changed everything. It was the game changer for all of us, for all of eternity. Now the grave, we sang that song, Arise, my love. The grave no longer has a claim because he is the first fruit. The grave no longer has a claim on us. And so today, weekend, that Paul said that I might know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. You can have the transforming power of the resurrection in your life today. If you've never trusted him, you can trust him today. And I want to give you that opportunity. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? No one looking about in this place. And to those of you who are watching and joining us by live stream and on television, radio, I offer to you the same invitation. To call upon the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the Lord uh, will be saved today. To call upon Him. You say, well, how do I call upon Him? What do I say? Well, in the quietness of this moment from your heart, with sincerity, call on Him. Say something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I need you. I thank you that you love me. And I receive you into my life. Not just into my belief, but into my heart. I invite you to come in. Move from just what I know about you to become my personal Lord and Savior. Now, Father... I know you hear that prayer because you've told us in your word you do. I pray for all of those who are watching, those in this live audience. I pray, Father, that you'll move in their hearts to call out to you. Now, Lord, in these moments before we're gone of invitation as we remember the resurrection, cause us to hear the voice of your Spirit prompting tugging, pulling, and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? 
I'm going to be here at the front, and we're going to have staff members on the side. And this is uh, an invitation. It's an invitation to, to respond to whatever the Lord has spoken to your heart about. Uh, maybe some of you say, I'm praying for somebody, or I'm praying about something. And I want to come and kneel at this altar. We use it all the time. We fill it up all the time. And I invite you to come and say, I'm going to pray. I need to pray. I want to pray. There's some things going on that I need to talk to Jesus about, and I'm going to come and bend my knee before him. Maybe you're here this morning, and you prayed that prayer just a moment ago in your heart to ask Jesus to come to your side. Would you slip out, and would you come this way and take one of our staff members by the hand and say, hey, today I prayed that prayer. And listen, we'll take it from there. Don't you, don't you worry about that. We'll, we'll handle it from there. Because you, you probably wonder, what do I do next? What, what's the next step? We'll help you with that. You may be here this morning and say, you know what I need? I need a church family, a church home. Every week people link their lives that know Christ. They link their lives with our family. We're so grateful. We're not a perfect church. Ridgecrest isn't a perfect church. I'm not a perfect pastor, but we're a healthy place. And we're a place where you can be fed the Word of God, where you can grow in your walk and your relationship with Him. And so I invite you to come and say, I want to join Ridgecrest. I want Ridgecrest to be my church home or family. Maybe you need to be baptized or to obey him. You're saved, but you've never been baptized. We won't do that today, but we'll, we'll schedule a time and we'll follow up with you on that. You can, of course, use a tear-off panel. It's on the back of your worship folder. You can use that and you can indicate any decision that you've made. You can drop that in the baskets on the way out or the, the boxes that are uh, located around the facility. But I'd love for you to come. Balcony, ground floor. 